Well, good morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to uh, reach inside your celebration folder and pull out the message notes. Looks like this. It's got all the various scripture passages that we're going to look at today and some little bit of white space in there so that you can write something down if uh, something impacts you in a particular way and you want to remember it. You feel the freedom to do that as well. Well, you know, nobody uh, is against seeing people get saved. Uh, no Christian I know anyway. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that. I mean, we get all excited about it, don't we? We have baptisms and we clap and, you know, people tell their stories of how they bowed their knee to Jesus and we hoop and holler. We're very excited about seeing people come to know Jesus as their Savior. But I wonder... If the whole advancement of Christianity rested upon your level of participation in evangelism, where would we be? I mean, who's the last person you had anything to do with them bowing their knee to Jesus? See, all of us are very much for evangelism. It's something we really want to see happening. It's just we aren't doing any of it. Now, already I see some of you starting to squirm. You know, you're thinking, oh, we could have blown off today and gone to lunch early or something. I, you know, but here we are, and it's going to be one of those kind of sermons. And I just want to encourage you to relax. You know, normally sermons like this are delivered by guys who have the gift of evangelism. And usually the message that comes across is something like this. What's the matter with you, you Christian scumbag? Get out there and witness to people. But that's not where I'm going, so let your guards down. I don't think that really is the message. I really don't think that is the point. You know, just get out there and witness to people. And the reason I think that is for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's just that most of us are just way too intimidated to ever be that bold. And you know, that's okay. I mean, we need to be prepared. In fact, uh, 1 Peter 3 tells us to be prepared. we need to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that we have. And so you need to be able to articulate to someone how they can come into a saving relationship with Jesus, to tell them how their sin separates them from a holy God, and that's the very reason Jesus died on the cross for them, to make it possible that if they'll just receive that, if they'll just personalize that Jesus' death will pay for their sin if he'll... If they'll let him do that. We need to be able to be prepared to give an answer. But the truth is most of us aren't going to be leading every person who sits next to us on an airplane to Christ. It's just not going to be the way it is. I I was with a a friend of mine. We were visiting Willow Creek Church, you know, that struggling little community there in Chicago, about 25,000 people on the weekends. And uh, we were sitting next to uh, some Creekers, you know, some people who went there, lived in Chicago, went to Willow Creek. And my friend Tony said, hey, what's it like being here and, you know, being able to hear Hill, Bill Hybels, you know, speak a lot. He was speaking that night. And they said, oh, we love it. It's great. And we love hearing Bill. But they said, you know, if he tells one more story about leading someone to Christ on an airplane, I'm just going to die. And that night he got up and told a story about leading someone to Christ on an airplane that week. So, but that's not going to be most of us, and that's okay. That's okay. I I don't think the solution is to just say, you need to get out there and witness to people, because that's not going to be most of us. But I think it's also not the point, because 
there are a ton of steps that precede getting around to the place of telling someone how to become a Christian. You know, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. That's really good, isn't it? Now, where that breaks down, though, is that for most Christians, we have so segregated our lives from lost people that even though we're preaching the gospel with the lives, they don't notice. You know, they don't see any of it. It's not doing any good. That's not happening. But here's, here's my emphasis for today. It's that most of us aren't called to witness to everything that moves. You know, uh, statistics show that about 10%, about one out of every 10 Christian has the gift of evangelism. And so some of you, that's your gift. You need to develop it. You need to use it. You need to be out there witnessing to everything that moves. But for most of us, 90% of us anyway, for most of us, that's not going to be the case. But we dare not miss Paul's point to Timothy in that first passage that you have there, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and then you may want to circle these next six words. He says, Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. I think what Paul is saying there is that we aren't all called to be evangelists. We aren't all given the gift of evangelism, but we all are called to be involved in the process of evangelism. And long before we get into what that means we should do, underneath that rests having a heart that's like Jesus. In fact, if you see Jesus' heartbeat, what you realize is a heart that beats for people who don't have a relationship with Him. And so my goal is that this morning you will begin to pray this prayer with me. And it's just simply this. God, give me an increasing heart for lost people. Increase my heart. God, give me that increasing heart for people who don't know you. Well, if you got a Bible with you this morning, why don't you take it and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in the book of Luke, not just chapter 19, but go ahead and start there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The, the verses are in your notes as well. But this is a very familiar story. And in this story, Jesus reveals his mission statement at the end. It's a story that if you grew up going to church, going to Sunday school, I'm sure you heard this story. In fact, you probably sang the song about Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man who climbed up in the tree. I mean, probably a lot of you could do it and break out in spontaneous singing of it right now if I called you to. But this is a great story that shows Jesus' heart. For lost people. Why don't you follow along with me? It says in verse 1 that Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he couldn't because of the crowd. And so 
he ran ahead <coughs> and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. It was like kind of Jesus coming down a parade and people were lined up, or coming down a street like a parade and people were lined up on both sides of the street and Zacchaeus couldn't see. Now, you've probably been taught, just like I've been taught, that the reason Zacchaeus couldn't see is because he was short. That's not the case. Zacchaeus couldn't see because he didn't have any friends. Because, you know, when you're short at a parade, what do people do? They let you stand in front, right? You know, because they can look over top of you. But nobody was doing that for Zacchaeus because they didn't like him. He was a tax collector. He wasn't one of the religious guys. He was a sinner. And so it says... That uh, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and he welcomed Jesus gladly. Of all the people you would have thought Jesus was going to make that offer to at the parade, Zacchaeus would have been the last person you would have ever thought. But it says all the people saw this and they began to mutter, He's gone to be a guest of a sinner. See, they didn't see Zacchaeus the way that Jesus saw Zacchaeus. They didn't have a heart for Zacchaeus like Jesus had a heart for Zacchaeus. And so it says, verse 8, that Zacchaeus then stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. Jesus said, You have moved Zacchaeus from being lost to being found. You've come into a relationship with me. You have experienced the impetus for having your life transformed. And then in verse 10, Jesus gives his mission statement. Here it is. He explains it all. This is Jesus' heart encapsulated. Here's what it says. He says, for the Son of Man, that's a name he often gave himself a title. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. You see, Jesus boldly proclaims that what is first and foremost in his heart is seeing people who don't know Him come into a relationship with Him as their Savior and Lord. You know, when you read your New Testaments, you constantly see Jesus being at odds with the religious leaders of His day. Isn't that that kind of strange? But He was constantly after them. He was constantly on their case because they had lost their mission. They had lost God's heart for seeing lost people come into a relationship with Him. And so as a result, what they did is they just stood around a lot of times and condemned and judged and criticized. And let me just pause here for a minute and let me just say this to you. You know, if you're here this morning... And the reason why you don't have a relationship with Jesus is because somewhere along the way, some person who called themselves a Christ follower did that to you. They judged you. They condemned you. They pointed down condescendingly to you. 
can I implore you with all that I, that I have to forgive us? Because that's not the heart of Jesus. It's not the heart of God. And though they might have wore the name of Christian, they did not represent Christ in making you feel that way. You know, it's kind of like this. If you're, if you're dating a jerk or you dated a jerk, you know, you wake up one morning and you think, man, that guy's a jerk. You know, or, or that, that gal is nothing but trouble, right? You don't give up on dating. What do you do? You give up on the jerk, right? See, don't, if you've been treated by a Christian who's been a jerk, don't confuse that with the God who they've misrepresented poorly. A God who loves you more than you can imagine being loved. And next week, we're going to talk next weekend about our responsibility to be better representatives of grace. But ahead of that today, we want to deal with this aspect of, of having a heart like Jesus that beats for lost people, that's never put off by people's sin, but instead sees the longing beneath it. To pray, God, give me an increasing heart for lost people. Well, probably the best picture of God's heart that we get is just found a couple of chapters back in Luke chapter 15, if you'd be willing to turn there. It's a, it's a chapter that probably most of us are familiar with. Jesus tells a series of stories there, but ahead of the stories, there's a context in the first couple verses that you have to understand that context to understand the stories. Luke chapter 15, listen to the first couple of verses. It says, now the The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. Here's Jesus there and these sinful people, they're all gathered around him. Verse 2, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You know... The religious guys were the ones who were most criticized by Jesus. I I think that's so strange. We just kind of read right past that in our New Testament. But it's because what they had done is they had turned faith into just these rules and regulations. And then what they would do is they became good at keeping the rules and regulations and pointing down their fingers and looking down their nose at people who weren't keeping the rules and regulations like they were. But that was never how Jesus responded to people who were lost. They loved to be around him. He was tender and understanding and compassionate. You know why Jesus was like that? He tells us in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. It says, on hearing this, this was a time when Jesus was being criticized, again, for being so familiar, so extending such relationships to to lost people. And Jesus said, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus despises self-righteousness because that's what comes when we turn Christianity into just these externals that we keep that causes us to look down our 
our nose, to, to judge and condescend towards lost people. And so what's going on here in Luke 15 is here's Jesus at the center of this crowd. He's there with the lost people. I mean, lost people love to be around Jesus. Do you see that when you read your New Testament? They were drawn to him. They, they never felt judged by him. They enjoyed being with him. And so there's Jesus in the, in the center of this crowd with the lost people. But in contrast to that, standing around the edges of the crowd, there's the religious guys, the Pharisees, the teachers. And they're judging, they're complaining, they're condemning. You see, friends, Pharisees, both in Jesus' day and today, are people who try to separate themselves from others. But people with Jesus' heart try to fill in the distance, try to relate, try to connect. Pharisees, both in Jesus' day and today, are people who love to draw a line between themselves and sinners. But people who have Jesus' heart are drawn to people who don't have that relationship with Christ yet. And they love them like God loves them. And so it's because of Jesus' heart that there he is at the center of the crowd with the sinful people while the Religious guys stood around the edge, criticizing and condemning. And so, friends, if we're going to be like Jesus, we've got to be people who are at the center of the crowd with the sinful people. Isn't that right? We've got to be people who are there, not on the edges, condemning and criticizing and judging, but there in the center with lost people. My friend Neil Cole puts it this way. He said, people who are like Jesus have to smell like smoke. Here's what he means by that. He's, Neil has um, planted several churches, and the main vehicle for doing that is that they've gone into coffee houses. He's in California. They go into coffee houses, and, and they have reached people who were so lost they didn't even know where the sign pointing to God was is, you know, that kind of thing, and done it just by developing conversations, just talking to these people. But what he realized is in California, it's, uh, like it is becoming increasingly so in other parts of the country, you can't smoke inside the coffee house. So what he realized is all the lost people were standing out front of the coffee house. And so he realized even though he didn't smoke, if he were going to have the opportunity to build relationships with these people and earn trust and have the chance to talk to them about Christ, he had to learn to smell like smoke. Well, for most of us, that's not going to mean going to the coffee houses. For most of us, it's just going to mean changing the way we look at people. You know, how do you look at your neighbors when you look down the street? You know, do you just see, oh, there's that guy and, you know, his dog is the one barking all the time. Or there's those people, I don't even know their name. They just go in their garage. Or, you know. or do you look at them and see them the way God sees them? People who, who don't know Jesus, who God desperately loves and wants a relationship with them. You know, are, are you working hard to extend yourself to them in a way that just might lead to opportunities of how God might use you to show Jesus' love to them?
You know, how about your coworkers? How, how do you look at your coworkers? When you, when you look across your office, you know, do you see the people you work with as kind of just like furniture? You know, they're there. <laughs> you use them. You work around them. Or do you see them the way God sees them? People who he desperately loves. And he longs for a relationship with them. Or how about that gay couple that lives around the corner from you? Or how about that guy that's the the most out-of-bounds guy you know? That uh, beer-drinking, chain-smoking, wife-running-around-on, foul-mouthed, coach of your son's little league team. <laughs> you know, we had a unique thing happen in our small group. We had um, a, a gal in our group named Rebecca, and she was talking one time about this coach of her son Jacob's team. And uh, she said, you know, I, I, the guy can't say a whole sentence without cussing. You know, and I think, and then one day... At a celebration service, this guy shows up. Rebecca comes in finally and says, there's the guy! There's the guy! See, we don't know what's going on in people's hearts and in people's homes, do we? But this guy and his wife were this close to a divorce. And they decided to play the card of, we're going to try church, and if that doesn't work, we're calling it quits. And they not only found church, they found Jesus. And Jesus radically changed their lives. That guy pastors a church now. Yeah. They're friends of mine, and, and I had the chance to just see them just this last week. See, but, but what I want you to capture is that Jesus deeply loves and he cares about reaching spiritually lost people because God the Father does. And so here in Luke 15, Jesus, confronted by these religious guys who just want to point and condemn and judge, Jesus tells them three stories to try to get them to understand God's heart for lost people. Let's look at them together real quickly. Starting in verse 3, it says, Then Jesus told them this parable. He says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home and then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus says God is so consumed with reaching spiritually lost people that he'll leave the other 99 sheep at risk in the open field. They weren't safe and secure at home in the pen. He leaves them at risk in the open field to go search for the one lost one. There's intentionality there. There's there's purposefulness. And he says there's more excitement in heaven over lost sheep getting saved than keeping righteous sheep happy and contented. You know, I... I work sometimes with pastors, and this past week I had the chance to do that. And, 
You know, what they often tell me is this. They say, they say, you know, we spend so much time just trying to have to keep the, the sheep that's already in our pen happy. Otherwise, they just whine and, and gripe and complain and they, they threaten to, to leave the pen. Or they start talking about getting another shepherd or joining the sheepfold down the street. How wrong we get it sometimes, huh? Because you see, reaching spiritually lost sheep is the heartbeat of God the Father. And it's the heartbeat of Jesus. And it needs to be the heartbeat of people who want to be like Jesus. So Jesus tells them another story. He figured they're like us. They're thick. They didn't get it the first time. He'll tell them another story. Same point, just different circumstances. And so he tells them, verse 8, he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and she loses one of them. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus says, God is like this woman who will go to great lengths to reach just one lost person. And you know, there's some of you here this morning, I'm sure, that if you told your stories, you'd say, man, amen to that. Because you were so lost, you didn't even know which direction to turn. And God, in His mercy and His grace, reached into your mess and miraculously saved you. Your trophies of His grace. And others of you are like me. You know, I became a Christian at age seven. It's hard to get a lot of good sinning in before seven. <laughs> the problem with that is, you know, all my messed upness, I can't blame it on my long life of sin. I just have managed to get this messed up all on my own, even after I was saved. But you know what? My salvation is every bit as miraculous. And so is yours. See, none of us stand on any higher ground when it comes to the cross than anybody else. We're all desperately in need of amazing grace. And this morning, whether you're a 40-year addict or a 40-year dedicated follower of Jesus Christ, none of us are any closer in how we merit the worth of a holy God. We all are in desperate need of grace. Not only to save us, but to sustain us. Maybe you're here today. You know, what you're thinking is, man, I, I've just messed up too much. I've just gone too far. I've flipped off God too many times. Listen, that is a lie from the pit of hell. God loves you more than you can imagine being loved. And it's not hard to find him. You just got to quit running and he'll catch you. Because this God of ours is willing to turn the entire house upside down to find you. Because reaching spiritually lost people is the heartbeat of God. And it was the heartbeat of Jesus. And it needs to be the heartbeat of people who want to be like Jesus. Jesus figured they still hadn't got it, so he tells them a third story. Same point, 
This is different characters, different circumstances. It's the story that probably most of us are most familiar with. It starts in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued and he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. The son said, I am tired of waiting around for you to die, Dad. That's what he said to him. Give me my half. And so the father did. And it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he longed to fill, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one would give him anything. That's hungry right there, isn't it? And it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'll sit out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Those are great words, aren't they? While he was still a long way off, God saw him. If you're a long way off, God sees you. And so it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. You see, when, when this lost son decided to return, God was there waiting with his arms open wide. You know why? Because reaching spiritually lost sons and daughters is the heartbeat of God. And it was the heartbeat of Jesus. And it needs to be the heartbeat of people who want to be like Jesus. Well, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, forgive us for the things we turn Christianity into. Forgive us for the things we oftentimes turn the church into a place where, where we go to get our needs, our wants taken care of, rather than a place that's on mission to, to have your heart to seek and to save spiritually lost people. Help us to have an increasing heart for lost people. A heart that causes us to look differently at the people in our lives that we rub shoulders with every day or the people that live on the street where we live or the, the people we work with or the people 
on our kids' sports teams or whatever it is. The guy in the locker next to ours, the, the girl that sits next to us in class. Lord, increase our heart for those people in a way that propels us to pray for them like we've never prayed. In a way that that causes us to extend ourselves in relationship to them rather than drawing lines between us and them. Lord, give us your heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.